This is the first webinar in a series of webinars, Hindsight is 2020, what we've learned about COVID-19. Today's webinar will be on systems of care related to COVID-19. Next week's webinar will be on bedside care. And finally, on December 17th, we'll have a discussion about ethics, research, and communications. My name is Chris Carroll. I'm professor of pediatrics at Connecticut Children's Medical Center and a pediatric ICU physician. It's my absolute pleasure to mo moderate this session. We've got a fantastic lineup of speakers today. Up first, and why don't we just go ahead and get started. Up first will be um, Dr. Mangala Nirasinham. She's going to be presenting today uh, for the first talk in our webinar, and then we'll have questions and discussions at the end. So I will turn this over to Dr. Narasimhan. Thank you, Chris, I appreciate it. Um, I'm Mangla Narasimhan, I work at Northwell Health in New York and I'm the director of the Acute Lung Injury Center, the VV ECMO Center, as well as a professor of medicine um, at the medical school. I'm gonna to talk to you about ICU organization and the lessons that we learned. Um, our hospital system was hit very hard in March and April and we were, I think, the epicenter of what was happening in New York at that time. So. I'm gonna to talk to you about some of the things that we went through and, and the lessons that we learned in the hopes that they will help you going forward. Uh, next slide, please. So we were prepared. We had heard about China, we had heard about Italy. We had several um, discussions and phone chats with the doctors in both China and Italy. And we had a command center set up um, and we were planning for what we thought was coming starting in mid-January. Uh, we had weekly meetings and we discussed surge planning and we discussed 10% above capacity and 20% above capacity, where we would put these beds and we ordered extra ventilators on, on rental, um, extra dialysis equipment, extra ECMO equipment, uh, just getting ready for what we thought was coming. And our division had multiple meetings um, discussing treatment algorithms and what we thought we were gonna do with that search plans for the ICUs, how are we gonna staff them, where are we gonna put them and what supplies we would need. And we really felt good that we had time to prepare after what was happening in Italy. And we thought that could never happen to us. We're the United States of America and, and we have a different medical system and you know they were overwhelmed, but that's because they, they're in Italy. So that was sort of the mentality going into March um, as we were preparing for this. Uh, next slide, please. And then we got hit and we got hit, not just a wave, but like a tidal wave. Uh, next slide. Um, this is how fast we, we our admission numbers rose. So we would be in the hospital and, and listening to overheads in the middle of March and hear about every 20 minutes an anesthesia call um, and an intubation. And we were filling up our ICUs to the point where we were getting about 20 to 25 patients in a 24 hour period. And we were doing this for about three weeks straight. So at our max, our hospitals, uh, we have uh, two tertiary hospitals that my direct group oversees. Uh, had about 900 patients each uh, with COVID in them. And about a, of those 900 patients, about 200 patients were intubated at each, each of those hospitals. So every possible space was taken to, to take care of these patients and the rapidity with which this happened, you could imagine we had a, within a, a month period, over 13,000 patients that we took care of with COVID in March, April, and May. Uh, and those are, that's how fast it rose. And uh, the discharges obviously did not happen very fast. Anyone who's taken care of COVID knows that their length of stay 
is longer than our normal ICU patients and their hospital stay is longer. And so our ICUs were filling much more rapidly than we were getting patients uh, out of our ICUs. So this created a huge problem for us. Next slide, please. And this is the, uh, again, the rise that we saw and the, rap the, the rapid uh, amount that had happened. And this is the number of total ICU admits that we had daily, basically, over that time period. Next slide period, please. So this is the total number of ICU patients that we took care of in the first surge. These are intubated patients. And you could see the number that are deceased and recovered. This was looking back sometime in June, looking back to March, April, and May. Um, next slide, please. And the average age was about 66 years old, so not very elderly people at all. And uh, next slide, please. And the number of days on the vent was around 12 days, much longer than regular ICU patients. Our normal length of stay in the ICU is about three to four days in our ICUs. So the, this is obviously 22 days in the hospital and 12 days on a ventilator, and that was um, our average. So uh, this was a real space issue, a, a person power issue, and nothing that we could really truly be prepared for in any way, no matter what we thought we were going into. Um, next slide, please. The comorbidities that we saw, uh, it was really respiratory failure. Um, they were mostly pneumonia patients. Some of them were acute renal failure with electrolyte disorders that needed acute dialysis. Um, and that was the large majority of them. So they were all intubated, all of the ones that made it to the ICU. We really had no patients in the ICU that were not intubated in ARDS. So it was large numbers of patients and very critically ill, not our usual mix of patients waiting to leave the ICU and patients waiting for a transfer and patients waiting for you know acute dialysis because they're on BiPAP. This was very different. These were very sick um, uh, patients that really needed a lot of care. Uh, next slide, please. And the patients who died pretty much died mostly of respiratory failure, renal failure. And uh, that was the big two diagnoses that we saw in the patients who did not survive um, their COVID stays. Uh, next slide, please. This is what our ICU space looked like. This is our PACU, uh, normally a very, uh, a space that is uh, less crowded. Um, this was about 50 patients in one open space. And we did this with many places in our ICE, in our hospital. You could see that they tried to wall off the central nurses station so that people would have some respite from the um, open space, but really it was very difficult to do that. So people spent 12 hours a day, every day in these units that were just these big open units. We had no ability to house patients in single rooms after the first week of this going on. So patients were everywhere. We had our auditorium, the seats were ripped out. We turned it into a patient care area. Our cafeteria was prepared to be a patient care area. We had several tents, industrial tents put up outside to help us take care of patients. Um, and this is how we got through this with the 900 uh, patients that we had uh, at, at one time. Uh, next slide, please. So what were our issues? It was the patient volume, number one, the rapid ascent of patient volume, the doubling time of patients and, and ICU admissions were, were very short. Um, so we had to create new teams pretty much every day to take care of ICUs. So very quickly we ran out of critical care teams. What we started to do is we put our critical care teams 
into the new units that were being built. Um, patients were very unstable when they first came in and then they sort of stabilized out. So we would have our critical care doctors in those new units as patients were coming in. And uh, 24 hours later, we would move our, our doctors to another unit um, and let them start another unit. And we would give that that relatively stable unit to another group of doctors that were not critical care that we deployed from other parts of the hospital. So we had hospitalists, we had cardiologists, we had GI doctors, we had cardiothoracic surgeons running an ICU. We had pretty much anyone that we could get. Uh, we had dermatology residents um, as our support staff. We had pediatrics people. Our PICU team took over one of the adult ICUs um, in our system. So we recruited everyone that we possibly could. Uh, we stabilized the patients and then we gave them to a team of doctors. And then every day our teams went around and we made vent rounds on 200 patients three times a day. And we adjusted the ventilators, we tried to help with management um, overall, and then we would move to the next unit and do the same thing. Um, and this is how we tried to help out and still keep um, people standing basically. Uh, and that we did this over and over again for many weeks. Um, and looking back, the one thing that I would say is, I really wish that we had more critical care doctors. I think that uh, patients would be served better. These were complicated vent management patients. And I think that the struggle was sedation um, issues. The struggle was uh, plateau pressures, driving pressures, proning patients appropriately. Um, and that you need a critical care doctor to do. Um, so as much time as we tried to go around doing vent rounds, the struggle was what happened two hours later and what changes were made and we would we would continue to just circle the hospital and round on as many patients as we could. And we would always try to put the non-critical care teams in some physical proximity to the critical care team so that we could help out if there were emergencies. But it was difficult with 200 patients in each hospital. Um, we were spread out then over three different hospitals trying to cover all of those patients. Um, so it was about 500 patients at a time that we were trying to cover at our max time that we were doing that. Um, ICU space, just constantly finding new safe places, putting monitors up in places that didn't have them and finding space to, to put patients that was safe. Um, we gave up on negative pressure very quickly. There was just not enough of it um, that we could do. And um, load balancing, we moved patients around. Uh, some of the hospitals in Queens got hit very hard early on and had patients waiting in the ER, intubated, not doing well. So we started moving patients out to our hospitals in Westchester, our hospitals out east, many miles from the epicenter that were less busy at that time. So we moved about 900 patients um, around into different hospitals, uh, just trying to fill hospitals that were less busy with sick patients so that they could get better space and better care. Um, so we did a lot of that. I think that saved a lot of people's lives. It was hard to move critically ill patients just as they came in, but there was no place to put them in the hospitals that they were showing up in. So that was uh, uh, something that I think really did help. Caregivers trying to train people, do um, boot camps for ARDS uh, with large groups of people as we set them out to deploy them into these ICUs. We tried to do that as much as possible. Um, and then supplies. Um, we would meet every day. I would get on a call with procurement and say, these are our hotspots. How many ventilators do we have left? Who's going to get hit tonight? Is it going to be this hospital, this hospital? And we would guess and say, this hospital probably needs 20 ventilators. And we would move them from a slower hospital that was not as busy um, by truck every night to a hospital that was getting hit very hard. And we managed to stay afloat 
with FEMA ventilators, our ventilators being moved from hospital to hospital, but every day it was a stress of, are we guessing correctly? Do we have the right hotspots? You know, what's gonna happen if we, if we guess incorrectly? So that was a very um, difficult thing to do. And we did that every day at the end of the day to make sure that the, at night they had enough ventilators for each place. CVVHD machines were another thing. And we started doing sled in large groups uh, of patients instead. We ran out of supplies for CVVHD and we ran out of dialysis nurses. So we tried to cohort patients in one unit that would need dialysis, a big open unit. And so the dialysis nurses could watch many patients at one time and try to make it a little more efficient that way. Um, all of us ran out of medications. Uh, you know, that's not something that was unique to us, but paralytics and sedatives were in short supply. So we tried to get by with what we could and use things that we would not normally go to as first line therapy. Um, and then high flow and non-invasive in March and April, we really weren't sure if they were safe. We weren't sure if our N95s were going to work. Everybody was very nervous about doing this in non-negative pressure spaces. So we ended up intubating a lot of people. Now we're doing a lot more high flow and non-invasive. And I'm still not 100% convinced it's good for some patients, but the patients who linger on 100% high flow and switch back and forth with eye level, I think their pleural swings and pleural pressure swings are really still very high. And we may not be doing them a favor long term because those patients, those particular subset of patients are still getting intubated late in their course. Um, so that was something that we struggled with as well uh, in the very beginning. Um, next slide, please. Um, and again, standardizing care, the GI doctors, the cardiothoracic surgeons, the cardiologists, the critical care surgeons, um, you know, all wanted to do things differently. And, and everybody thought this was some special ARDS that was different because that's what the internet was saying. So that battle of trying to, to do good critical care, standard ARDSnet care uh, was a constant battle for us and that we were trying to go around and fix fix that all the time. I, I told you about vent management, sedation management. People wanted to do no sedation and people wanted to do very little sedation and people wanted to do 10, 10 different sedatives. So just trying to get that into some orderly fashion as well was a struggle. And then there was a, a treatment struggle. We didn't know what to do. We, we, we would meet every day as a group, um, the critical care team and say, what's out there today in the literature, what have we read about? And we would talk about treatment and every ICU and every one of our hospitals was doing different things and different uh, amounts and tocilizumab and IL-1 and steroids. And we were arguing about what treatments to give and hydroxychloroquine or not. So that was a big stress, I think, for the teams because we weren't um, aligned and we everyone sort of was reading something and wanted to try it and had anecdotal evidence that their friends said it was working. So struggling with that treatment algorithm. So I think if you can get that straightened out and at least within your own group agree that this is what you're going to do, um, I think that will take a big stress off of your team's um, team structure. Who owns the resources of the ACPs across the system and who owns the residents and how can we move people around? We had to get break down a lot of barriers and silos to move people to where we needed them rapidly. And that was a difficult thing because everybody works in their own little world. Um, and then uh, all of a sudden when things got a little bit better, everybody wanted to pull back to their units and go back to cardiac surgery and go back to endoscopy and do all the things that they were doing. And then we were left running many more ICUs than we could handle at the very end. So I think rem remembering to keep teams where they need to be for as long as you need them um, is also a key, a key thing. 
Um, and then research. We were trying while all this was happening to do trials and to, to get information out there for the rest of the country. And that was very difficult to do while we were, you know, struggling to stay afloat and, and really drowning what we were dealing with. And now we're dealing with the issues of burnout. Um, the first time it was exciting and it was sexy to be in New York when all this was happening. But now knowing what we knew and, and, and being exhausted six months later, people don't want to do this again. So as we go back into this now, we're dealing with the burnout issues and uh, just the, the physical and mental exhaustion of been now, you know, six or eight months of doing this. So um, that's my story in New York at Northwell. And I hopefully that will help people out there. That was great. Uh, thank you. I'm looking forward to our discussion at the end of this. Um, I really appreciate you describing your experience in New York, um, which sounds like you did a spectacular job holding that that whole group together. So thank you. Um, next up is Dr. Geneva, Geneva Tatum, who is going to be talking about changes to medical education over the last year. Dr. Thank you so much, Dr. Carroll. Yes, I'm the Fellowship Program Director of Critical Care Medicine and Pulmonary Critical Care at Henry Ford Hospital and Associate Pro uh, Professor of Medicine. And so I just wanted to spend a few minutes just talking about some changes in medical education during um, the pandemic. Next slide. I think that there were some key things that all of us in medical education around the country learned. Um, we, we certainly learned one very um, important thing, which was that our trainees had a degree of resilience and adaptability that we may not have initially predicted. But I think we also recognize that now as we are entering into the second phase or the second wave of this pandemic, if you will, or for some even the third, that they're starting to lose some of that resilience. Um, and and um, we're, we're concerned that that may be an ever-increasing problem with burnout as we kind of move into this very long phase that we anticipate during winter. Um, one of the key things that I think um, many of us learned was really a focus on psychological safety. And that's a term coined by Dr. Amy Edmondson at the Harvard Business School that really talks about um, the climate in which people feel comfortable sharing concerns and mistakes without fear of embarrassment or retribution. And, and for those who may be medical educators on the line and know about the AG, ACGME survey in particular, that's actually a question that we look at uh, under resources on the survey. It's not quite worded that way, but that's what it's really trying to get at. And so if we think about what we've all experienced and all we've seen uh, within COVID, we know that patient safety and provider safety is a key element of being able to provide uh, effective care. Um, our trainees were in a unique uh, situation in the sense that they are both learning, um, but they're also trying to develop skills that are necessary for them to be you know, technically competent and very proficient in providing care. And so being able to create an environment where they not only felt safe to speak up about issues that concern them around patient care, but more importantly, issues that concern them around their own personal care and personal safety was really important. All of us spent um, a fair amount of time making sure that there was appropriate education in PPE, donning and doffing. It's a simple concept, 
But if you're not careful about it, you can actually self-contaminate. And so making sure that our residents and our fellows were really comfortable and really understood how to do that properly and correctly and having buddy systems initially to make sure of that was a key element to that. And again, I think, you know, really having a lens on psychological safety really allowed our teams to grow dynamically and also allowed them to create trust and respect among themselves and to diffuse that amongst teams as we rapidly expanded. We had the same um, rapid expansion as they did in Northwell, um, not to the same degree, but certainly in a very, very rapid ramp up. And we found ourselves having to build teams, you know, of very different um, background experience, very different in training. And so we had to have a sensitivity to team structure and a sensitivity to our trainees that may be coming from other backgrounds like neurology or dermatology and really were unfamiliar with the critical care environment as well. And so being able to allow our fellows to leverage their skills um, that they have in critical care medicine to educate their peers or their junior trainees um, within principles of ICU care was incredibly important. That allowed them to solidify their knowledge, but it also allowed us all to extend our scope of critical care education within the institution which was essential in order for us to provide um, adequate care for our patients. I think it goes without saying, there you know, had been a lot of emphasis in terms of the changing ways in which we teach. Um, certainly what we have to teach has remained static, but the methods in which we do it are constantly in evolution. And I think the pandemic has taught us a fair amount of innovation um, in, in order to, to meet educational needs. And so we learned how to or incorporate technology that we may have been using um, in small ways and really had to rapidly adapt that and adopt it so that we could be effective in our teaching. Um, I think it goes without saying that there has been a tremendous amount of synchronous and asynchronous virtual learning you know, due to fellow deployment and resident redeployment needs and changes. And so all of us around the country had to pivot very quickly um, to incorporate technology in order to allow our trainees to still learn while actively uh, either being deployed or being uh, away from clinical care. And so um, rapid updates in literature, um, were very important, providing them references, providing them updates in terms of what our policies and procedures were and our best practices were. And I think one of the things that we're now focused on as again, we're, we're in the setup for the next wave is really thinking about um, the ACGME's focus that they have set for us in terms of um, competency-based medical education. I think for those trainees who already experienced that first wave in March, April, May, who are now continuing training and are now faced with, again, an, another surge, um, it's incredibly important for all of us in medical education to really focus on their clinical competency. And so 
the ACGME actually has put on their website some guidance around that in terms of assessing uh, progress and you know identifying competency gaps. Um, it's incredibly important, you know, when I think about my critical care trainees in particular who spent an inordinate amount of time providing you know medical critical care essential to them being deemed competent is also understanding and being able to provide care for non-medical patients, surgical patients, neuro ICU patients, et cetera. And so having a sensitivity to those experiences that they may have missed at the end of last academic year and ensuring that they um, are provided those opportunities is incredibly important as they move um, through this academic year. I think the other thing was really um, having a great opportunity to collaborate across institutions. You know, um, we do tend to work in silos, but this really allowed us to break those barriers down. Um, we found that we had to connect among programs. Um, we had to connect with our national organizations so that we could have um, some repository of reliable uh, data and reliable literature that we could use and use that to help learn from one another. Um, our, our trainees are very, you know, technology savvy, very app savvy in particular. And so they, you know, they set up Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups um, in order for them to share learning and share protocols across programs. And many of us um, in our training programs you know, um, had virtual conferences on a regional level, which allowed us then to collaborate um, across institutions within the region um, and provide some learning opportunities for fellows at smaller programs that may not be able to um, get as much as the larger programs have. And I think, you know, particularly when it comes to synchronous and asynchronous learning, I think one of the things unique in, in critical care medicine is in particular are the procedural needs. And so learning how to deliver content around procedural competency and being able to observe and assess that was really important. Next slide. Um, what you'll see here is actually part of our regional bronchoscopy um, simulation that we had at earlier in the academic year. And what you're seeing is actually some of the things that we did to allow for procedural um, training and simulation in, in real time. And you have uh, an instructor and a learner who actually are facing away from each other again, um, allowing for a little bit better social distancing. They both have masks. Um, and this was really important to us um, because again, there's, there are a lot of things that limit our ability to have large numbers of learners together in one room. And so this was you know, just one simple way of doing it. Next slide. And then again, you'll be able to see again, social distancing, mask wearing, uh, all of the things that are necessary to, to keep trainees safe um, as they're learning hands-on um, procedural um, education. Because again, there are some elements of what we do that cannot be um, re-demonstrated or um, done virtually. There, there needs to be live hands-on training and direct observation. And this is one way that we were able to do it. 
Um, and it was a really great opportunity, again, for fellowship programs around the state because this was a regional conference. So those smaller programs that didn't have um, the technical equipment, the resources really to provide this type of training, we were able to provide for them, which I think was, again, a, a great testament to our ability to do institutional collaboration uh, throughout the region. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Tatum. That was excellent. Uh, so next up is Dr. Hagab, Sarah Hagab, who is going to be talking about how some of our visitation policies have changed um, some of our patient and family-centered care that we typically provide. Dr. Hagab. Thank you, Dr. Carroll. Can we, next slide. So, um, we, patient and family-centered care is a uh, kind of cornerstone of our approach to providing care for patients. And patient-centeredness is a term that was invented, so to speak, about two decades ago, and is defined as providing care that is respectful of and responsive to individual patient preferences, needs, and values, and ensuring that patients' values guide all of our clinical decisions. So part of being able to deliver patient and family-centered care is including the patient and the family in all of the decisions that we make. And part of that is welcoming them into the care setting. And so many years ago, this idea of limited uh, visitor hours uh, in hospitals really has been eliminated uh, with the focus on improving access and transparency and uh, family's ability to be at a patient's bedside. Next slide. So the challenges that presented themselves with um, COVID were that we were faced with a highly contagious novel virus. The early risk factors weren't really clear. So we, didn't re we weren't sure who was more at risk for developing this disease, who was more likely to become infected or not. What were the, the um, risk factors for developing more severe disease versus less severe disease? So we were really dealing with many unknowns and in some ways still are. Contagiousness, obviously, when you're dealing with a pandemic um, and an infectious disease is, is of utmost concern. And so how could we best protect families? How could we protect our patients? How could we protect other patients in the hospital who may not be admitted with COVID? And how do we protect our, our staff? There was also kind of an, in, on the forefront of everyone's mind, PPE shortages nationally. We are in a better place now than we were early on in the pandemic, but, but we were struggling to provide enough PPE for caregivers uh, in the hospital and healthcare providers. So, so how could we manage to bring more people um, into the hospital? And so for, for, for many of those reasons, we changed our policy. Next slide to um, a no visitor policy. It's important to remember that during any crisis, the need, um, just from a psychological and emotional perspective, the need for connectedness increases. And so I want you to take a moment and look at these pictures, which were published in various newspaper publications throughout the pandemic. And they, I'm sure they look very familiar to everybody on, on this call. 
the gowns, the masks, the shields. So they are physical barriers that were there, yes, to protect us, but they, they were barriers between us and our patients. Imagine being a patient who was sedated, who may have altered mental status in the hospital, who does not have any familiar person around them. And this is what they see every day. And so it's very hard to connect with those, those taking care of, of them. And sometimes, and I'm sure can be very scary. And so people started to get creative. There was a need on our part as providers, knowing that that connection is so important. There was a need to maintain that connection. And so people started to think of creative ways in order to kind of break down some of those physical barriers that were there. So you had people who print hospital systems that printed pictures of healthcare providers and they could be worn outside of their gowns so that patients could still see and feel the kind of that human connection with the person that was caring for them when they were at a very vulnerable time. Next slide. The impact of the visitor policy was huge on patients, but also huge on us as providers, because we know how important it is for patients to have their families with them. And so Twitter was filled with thousands upon thousands of posts from patients as well as caregivers about the impact of this visitor policy and the lack of the inability to have visitors and family at the bedside. So Dr. Silver posted, Last night, I had to tell an elderly patient that they were going to die from COVID-19 and fast. There was nothing more we could do for them. They reached out and I held their hand for a while and their only source of comfort, their only source of comfort in the world. Soon I had to let go as I had other patients that needed my help, what little help I could offer. This patient ended up dying alone and there were no visitors allowed in the hospital. Imagine the feeling walking away from this person knowing death was coming for them and you were their last human contact, their last sense of hope and connection to this world. This will stick with me for a while. There is a moral injury there that is happening to providers having to witness this degree of suffering. So it is suffering above and beyond that caused by the disease and the illness, but also this human suffering that I don't think we've experienced in this way, whether it be on the patient side or the provider side. Luke is a nurse who describes, a patient died the other night with me holding her hand because COVID-19 has prevented families from visiting their loved ones. Today, I sat with a patient and held their hand and cried as she was terminally extubated. This freaking sucks. And so th these are not unique stories. And I'm sure many, many, many Everybody who has taken care of COVID patients has experienced this on some level. Next slide. Dr. McHugh mentioned a patient who, after she delivered her baby, thanked her for touching her. She said that since she'd become infected, people were afraid of her and wouldn't make eye contact, much less hold her hand. And so again, the importance of connection, the importance of having that support around people can't be understated. Um, and the impact of its loss on patients can't be understated. I think it's important for us to recognize this level of suffering that patients are going through so that we can try and tend to it when we can. Next slide. 
There are often, under normal circumstances, barriers to family communication that have been um, highlighted or magnified by the pandemic. Family may be unavailable to talk during hours when we may be available. Family may not have internet access or a device capable of video conferencing. This, I, I naively did not realize how many patients in our Detroit area struggle with access to internet. Or they may have phones, but they aren't smartphones and they, they can't video conference. The patients may not have those devices. There may be language barriers. Um, the other thing is fam family members or patients may have limited technological literacy, and this is particularly prevalent in our older population. So, you know, there are patients who are in their 70s or 80s, they have the smartphone, but they're not really sure how to use it, and they're, or they don't know how to video conference through it. And so uh, our awareness of these barriers is extremely important to be able um, to help kind of bridge that gap. Next slide. So what are some communication strategies or best practices? And these are by no means, this is by no means a comprehensive list, but these are some suggestions, um, some that we, we implemented, many that we implemented in our own uh, institution that we found helpful. So encouraging patients and families to call, text, or video conference one another, facilitate delivery of communication devices from the family to the patient. The, the family can't come in. And so we have to find a, um, a system that works to be able to deliver those things in a timely fashion, including the charging devices. Um, help patients record and send audio or video or written messages to their families. Encourage patients to journal when they can. Um, our hospital provided tablets in order for each individual ICU. At first, we were using our own devices, placing them in biohazard bags and taking them in and then sterilizing them when we came out. And so there was, an, it was recognized that there was a need for us to be able to easily and readily provide that video conferencing for patients. And so considering um, buying whatever devices for your institution to help facilitate that is really important. Request pastoral care support or facilitate video conferencing service with external faith leaders. And so just because they can't come visit doesn't mean that we can't facilitate that communication and provide comfort um, for families and patients in that way. Customizing the patient's environment. And so, you know, there are patients who sometimes in the ICU, especially if they're having a, a slightly longer stay, will notice traditionally family will bring in pictures and drawings and things that are placed on the wall. And I think that that was much more common with COVID patients where we would, their rooms would have, um, would have pictures and blankets and whatever, whatever familiar things um, patients could connect with um, and have that almost as a conduit with, with their loved ones. I, I emphasize to my resident and fellow teams that Communication at baseline is essential with families, but now, now we didn't have the luxury of having them come to the ICU at some point during the day for us to be able to go meet with them and give them an update. And it's easy to get to miss calling people or to forget to call when you're caring for so many more patients than we usually are accustomed to caring for. But it was almost a rule that we had to connect with families at least 
once per day, preferably twice, once after rounds, once before they left for the day to give them that update. Because I think what we also forget is many of these patients were dropped off by their families in the ER and these patients walked into the hospital. And we are calling the families a few weeks later saying they are unlikely to survive. And we're talking about potentially withdrawing life support. And that without witnessing that progression or that decline over time, there's a disconnect there for families and patients. And if you think of the amount of trust we are asking people to instill in us when we are making these recommendations to them and they haven't seen their loved ones, um, it's very important to make sure that we've done our job communicating and built that trust over time um, because our role has become even more important and um, in supporting families and making these decisions. Um, Again, this is not a comprehensive list and we've had to be creative in making sure that we're connecting with patients and their families. Um, but I think, I think if there's one thing that I would like everyone to take away from this is being mindful of the impact that this has had on, on patients and families as well as us and finding strategies to, to make sure that we are um, effectively communicating with patients and, and their families. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, that was excellent and uh, very moving. Um, so I'd like to open this up for a panel discussion now. Um, we have some questions from the audience, um, but I'm going to take a question um, of my own to start with. So uh, for really everyone, um, we're in the middle of a, a third wave. Maybe can you count a fourth wave with the Thanksgiving that we all just had? Um, what... Uh, what have we what have we learned that we need to be doing be going forward? What are we what do you guys think that we should be focusing on over the next um, few weeks in your particular areas? What are the two or three things that we should be really paying attention to? So I think um, I think one of the things that that we're doing is, you know, in the beginning, it was figuring out how we were going to ramp up, how you know which units were going to be converted to COVID units first. What, how teams were going to be potentially redeployed. Uh, I know a, a, a another, it's a little easier this time in the sense that those plans have already been developed and are in place. I think what, what we're, um, I know what we're focused on as well is how do we keep our non-COVID services, particularly on the outpatient side, still running as much as we possibly can while balancing the service demands that we know will go up on the inpatient side so that we can make sure that, that we can um, still kind of provide the care that we need to for non-COVID patients. We know that there, there was an impact on, on those patient populations before, you know, after COVID because people delayed care. So how do we try and avoid making that happen? I think what we what we're trying to do differently is really um, change people's schedules a little bit to give them time in between their runs in the hospital. So, trying to take uh, um, four or five days before you come back again after you've done a seven day shift swing, so that people have time away from the hospital can recover a little bit from what they've been through and go back in. This time, there's a lot less help. Uh, we don't have as many people deployed to help us um, because people are trying to continue regular operations and of, of other services. So that's a little bit of a struggle. So really trying to focus on 
keeping people sane and, and dealing with the burnout um, and also trying to keep the group very cohesive. We are meeting, um, agreeing on treatment plans. It's a little easier. We have some randomized control trials now that we can go by. Um, so there isn't this uh, back and forth about what treatment to give as much as there was before. Um, so that's helped a lot, um, the unity within the division. Um, so, and it is, it's really just critical care this time and, you know, coming together. So that makes that a little bit easier as well. Yeah. And everyone's getting hit. So it's not as if everyone can come running to New York and Seattle to help out because we're all getting hit. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And I would think from a, from a medical education standpoint, I think there's two elements. One is again, having, having an eye on what educational opportunities a trainee may have missed in the previous academic year and making sure that there's an opportunity for them to go and get those, those educational rotations. Um, certainly because all of the other um, hospital operations are up and you know, not nearly as um, taxed or strained as they were the first time around. And um, it actually makes it easier for, for trainees to get those other clinical rotations outside of the medical ICU, which I think is incredibly important. And I think the other thing, again, the thing that keeps me up at night is always thinking about trainee wellness. Um, I think, again, as I mentioned about psychological safety, I think our trainees in particular are hesitant to let us know when they are in need, um, when they're struggling. And so um, it becomes incredibly important to make sure that we assess that. You know, I'm one of these people who goes day by day into the ICU and, and just kind of touches base with people just because I want to make sure that, you know, when I hear that things are okay, that I can see it for myself. Um, and, and more importantly, sur survey and surveil um, the needs of our trainees and, and get the resources that they need so that they feel comfortable in their environment because there is a tremendous amount of, of moral distress that they have uh, encountered. Um, and making sure that we have an awareness of that is, is incredibly important because, again, they're not always willing to tell us when they are struggling. And so it is really up to us to make sure that we, um, you know, keep them safe and keep them well. Dr. Tatum, I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about medical students, um, and just as a separately from trainee, from residents and fellows, they're a little bit of a different population. And I know that some institutions are asking medical students to be more asynchronous and distance in their learning because of concerns about spreading COVID among staff, concerns about PPE shortages, and sometimes they get a little bit of a short um, shrift. So I, I wondered if you could speak about that a little bit. Yes, I think they certainly um, did have an element of that, um, particularly in the first wave. And it, it was kind of an um, interesting dichotomy. There were certain places within the country, New York being one of them, where you know medical students were being graduated early and coming into residency um, you know, early, well, not early, but before all of their rotations were done so that they could start and help with workforce demands. Now the pendulum has swung the other way, and now there are already discussions about extension of training, at least for residency and or fellowship. And there's probably, again, some more discussion about what that looks like from the medical student perspective as well. So it's an interesting um, dichotomy, if you will. 
I think, you know, again, with the sensitivity to what our trainees needs, I think medical students in particular were very well protected the first time around. Um, and we, we have to sort of gauge where that right level of protection comes from. I think now that, again, we have proper PPE, we have, you know, well-established procedures for donning and doffing, we have systems in place where we can make sure that medical students in particular can keep themselves safe. I think it's less of an issue in terms of you know, keeping them completely away from clinical rotations and, and is a much more easy to now have them, you know, continue in their, in their learning in a more synchronous and more in-person environment clearly than earlier um, this year. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, so, Dr. Hagab, should we be, what should we be doing with our, our visitation policies? Should we be, and if you ran the world, should we be lightening them up a little bit? I, it, that's a really hard question. <laughs> I'm sorry to throw yeah, that at you I then. Think, I think on the one hand, I think- can, You can hand, phone a friend and ask one of the other doctors on the yeah, call. On the, I, the I, I think on the one hand, again, the, the importance of patient-centeredness can't be overstated. Um, but I think the, the worry is that you know, when you have positivity rates in the community that are as high as they are, and we already have a problem with PPE shortage, we have a problem with healthcare workers now um, needing, you know, to be quarantined because they're coming, they're developing COVID and, and, and COVID positive, which is putting a huge strain on the, on the workforce. I think, I think we are still from a resource standpoint, having to make that difficult decision and, and say, um, that, that visitors, I think it's probably prudent to still maintain um, many of the restrictions that are currently in place. When the, the community positivity rates were low over the summer, those restrictions were loosened. And so it's not to say that that's not possible and it's not to say that COVID patients won't ever be able to have visitors. But I do think that um, right now with the surge that we're in would not be the right time to, to loosen those restrictions. Yeah, and I will, I would definitely agree with that. We've had several instances where visitors have brought COVID to patients in the hospital. Yeah. Um, so I think there's lots of reasons, unfortunately, when the community positivity is so high that you sort of have to. Thank you. So we had a question about, um, process improvement. And I know um, uh, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, huddling and um, and uh, it sounds like um, at least in New York, you did a tremendous amount of, um, of huddling and coordination. Oops, I muted myself. Do a tremendous amount of coordination every night to evaluate your current practices and where you need to move ventilators and staff and things like that. Um, are you still uh, doing that? Is that something that's still going on or you plan on doing in the, in the next surge? We've had lots of time between and to go over what we need to do and to be ready for this next wave that we're, we're seeing now. So we've had time to sort of plan that out um, and uh, shore up our resources and get more ventilators. Um, so we are uh, much better prepared this time around given what we saw last time. So I'm hoping we never get to that point of having to do that again. Um, but if we need to, we absolutely will. We're meeting 
on a regular basis and just talking about supplies and making sure that everybody knows what we have. Um, but I, we, we are certainly not at the point where we were last time where we were, are limited in resource and we are just struggling to get through the day every day. So there's a big difference. We've had some time and, you know, the um, availability of things has loosened up a little bit during that time period. So uh, as we go into this work, we're better prepared. So if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice, what would you have given yourself um, in March? Anyone? <laughs> I think the fear was the biggest thing for us at that time. We were afraid we were all going to get sick. So I think telling myself that proper PPE works and to be confident in that would have saved a lot of stress and uh, anxiety back then. So knowing that and feeling secure coming to work uh, would have been very helpful. So that would be the one big thing I would say. And um, that would change a lot of other things around me knowing that. I think, I think that's a great point. I think that, um, you know, certainly people in the healthcare setting who wear proper PPE and treat everyone as if they've got, treat everyone we meet as if they've got COVID, um, you know, we're, we're less afraid of getting it because we, know that the precautions that we take in terms of masking and, um, and personal hygiene work. So, um, you know, we're, I think a little less afraid, um, than, you know, maybe some of um, people in the community. Yeah. I, I, I thank you for mentioning that Mangala, because I think I, I, acknowledging the fear that we all had was, is really important. And I think you're right. When I gauge my level of anxiety right now, going into another anticipated big surge, I think it's, it, even though potentially the surge is going, we're expecting maybe bigger than the first one, the anxiety is not of the same level, I think, because there isn't as much fear um, personally and for my colleagues and for those around me in terms of, you know, our risk. And I think, and in all fairness, I think we're, we know more, right. What we know more now about the fact that our PPE works and yeah. what level of PPE yeah. is appropriate. And, and there was a lot of misinformation and a lot of misguidance in the beginning that certainly didn't help um, with a lot of the anxiety that, that we had. Um, I, and I think our PPE stocks are, are better now than they were. And so, so fingers crossed, <laughs> they stay that way. But, um, but I think that's another big factor. Yeah. Dr. Tatum, did you want to chime in on what you would tell yourself? Sure. I mean, I, I, I would remind myself, um, you know, that you, there are many things and many challenges that are up ahead, but, you know, again, with, with good planning and a good clear mind focused on it, you, you can get through it. I think, you know, our teams did extraordinary work. I think um, the communication plans um, within our institution and again, across institutions was phenomenal and really helped us be very effective. I think not only would I have uh, better acknowledge my anxiety, but I think I probably also would have recognized that I thought I knew more than I actually did. Um, and I think the greatest lesson for me in this, this whole pandemic was being able to, again, model to my learners that we don't know much of anything. And so if there's ever a time for them to know that it is okay not to know, 
and to be comfortable in saying they don't know something, they don't know how to approach a problem, but they need help, um, I think was probably one of the greatest lessons, helping them actually see um, that not everybody has all the answers, even though they may think others do, um, and getting comfortable with not knowing the answers, but being diligent about using the information we do know and treating patients with the science and the evidence that we do know works is, is the right way to go. I think that was an incredibly important lesson for all of us. I'd like, I'd like to add one thing. Um, I think being better prepared in with, to handle the PTSD and burnout of our staff, um, training people in psychological first aid uh, and, and being able to deploy teams to, you know, resident teams who are dealing with, you know, patient dying, at, you know, one after the other, after the other. I mean, that takes a toll on, on, on people. I think the nurses were under enormous um, stress and there are many across the country who have left medicine right after having having had to deal with that. And I think we underestimate the impact that this is going to have um, on us long term. And I think being better prepared uh, for that. And I don't, I don't know that you can ever really prepare for something like this unless you've you've experienced it. But in retrospect, uh, and what I hope we can accomplish with this upcoming surge is having those um, those processes and programs in place to make sure that we're, we're taking care of our own as well. And I'll just add that uh, some self-compassion that we really did the best we can. And although we feel like every patient death is a failure, um, that some self-compassion that we, we tried to do the best we could in the circumstances that we were given. Uh, I would tell myself that. I think that's a great way to conclude. Um, I've been uh, very impressed with how everyone has risen to this occasion across the country and particularly um, the, 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 the teams at the bedside in terms of the nurses and the respiratory therapists and the physicians and the residents and, and, and the um, environmental staff who frequently doesn't get mentioned at all, but is the backbone of the, of most institutions, uh, you know, so um we're all we're all a big team, and we've we've um, done a great job getting through this, and uh, together we'll get through it again. So uh, I want to thank our panelists. This has been a, a really great discussion. Um, I was honored to to lead such an august group of uh, doctors. Thank you all for joining us today, um, and thank you um, to those of us who listened. Uh, I appreciate your time, and uh, please tune in next week when we'll be talking about specifics about bedside care and treatments and what we've learned about what's the best way to treat patients with uh, COVID over uh, the last year. So thank you very much all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Care.